This podcast is created by Angelina David, Cassidy Lake, Isabel Mills, and Cassandra Bourgeois in FEM 1100B, Introduction to Women, Gender, and Feminism offered by the Institute of Feminist and Gender Studies through the University of Ottawa. We wish to thank our professor, Radamasaki, and the U Ottawa Community Engagement Team, Community Service Learning Program, for all their assistance in making this podcast. We also wish to thank Jonathan Dagan from the University of Ottawa Library for their assistance. We acknowledge that we are working on the unceded and unsurrendered lands of the Algonquin people and respect them as the traditional keepers of this land. In the last hundred years, the women's rights movement have made many advances, but it is not until we are all equal in all domains that the fight for gender equality is over. There have been many marking events in history, such as the right for women to vote, as well as the movements created by women in the four waves of feminism. In the 1916, suffrage being the right to vote was earned by women in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. The federal government then granted limited wartime suffrage to some women in the 1917 and followed suit with full suffrage in 1918. By the close of 1922, all all the Canadian provinces except Quebec had granted full suffrage to white and black women. Before the war, women typically had homemaker posts, but for the few that worked outside their homes, there were few professional options deemed as suitable for women. However, due to the labor shortages during World War I, women took over factory jobs needed to keep the war going and Canada going. After the war, a combination of suffrage and growing independence led to the increase of participation of women who worked in varying fields, all of which advanced the feminist movement. As a guest speaker, we will have the Honorable Pamela Hebner, a Superior Court Justice in Ontario, with whom we will discuss topics related to women in the field of law and her personal experience moving through this challenging and male-dominated field. To follow, we have a few examples of amazing historical women who worked in the field of law, such as Clara Bretman, who was the first female lawyer in Canada in 1897. Before completing her degree in law, she obtained a bachelor's in mathematics, which was almost unheard of in that time due to the masculinity associated with the subject. Then we have Violet King Henry, who was the first black female lawyer in Canada she was also the first black person to graduate from the Law School of Alberta in 1953, then be called into the Alberta Law a year later. A quote from her is, People told me it wasn't a good idea for a girl to be a lawyer, particularly a colored girl, so I went ahead. Then we have Roberta Jameson, the first indigenous woman to ever earn a law degree in Canada. She graduated from McGill in 1976, and she is also known for the creation and promotion of alternative dispute resolution methods. Another important person would be Dalai Opekoku, the first Indigenous person to be admitted to the bar in Ontario in 1979 and Saskatchewan in 1983, after having graduated from Osgoode Hall Law School in 1977. She practiced civil and family law before, before acting as legal counsel for the Federation of Saskatchewan Indian Nation. And lastly, we have Bertha Wilson, the first woman to be appointed to the Superior Court in Ontario in 1975. When considering feminist theory, we must understand the historic views on women and their relationships with our current ones, and how they reflect the policies surrounding how women are treated in the workplace. One of which being that women were seen, and still are, as having too many emotions to think rationally and have clear, concise thoughts and way of expression. Women's involvement in law is an important step to true equality because it allows people to see that women can thrive and work in a male-dominated field just as well as any other can, as well as debunk these misogynistic ideologies of the past. We will now be interviewing the Honorable Pamela Hebner, a Superior Court Justice of Ontario. Do you want to start out by telling us a little bit about yourself? 
Sure. So I got my undergrad in economics and then I went to law school. I graduated from law school in 1986. I did my articling year with a law firm in Kitchener and then was called to the bar in 1988. So I practiced law for 27 years with the same firm and uh, became a partner after about 10 years. I was the first female partner. And then in 2000, I was the uh, president of the Water Law Association um, for a few years. I was on the board for a number of years. And then in um, 2015, I was appointed to the Superior Court. And here in Windsor, and I'm only the third, I was the third woman to sit on this court's bench in Windsor. Yeah, because I know there's multiple sections of the Superior Court, right, depending on where you're um, serving. No, there's multiple uh, regions, yes. but um, we're all one court. The whole province, Superior Court of Ontario is all one court. Um, we have a separate branch, the family court, and they have a family court patent and uh, concentrate on family court work. Um, but we don't have the family court in Windsor, so we're a general court. Uh, so I sit on the criminal, family, and civil matters. Very cool. So you get a good wide breadth of uh, cases. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Very interesting. And I practiced mainly family law and also some construction litigation and some civil law. I didn't practice any criminal law at all. But right now, probably criminal law is over 50% of the work that I'm doing, just because, uh, particularly because of the pandemic and the backlog. It's very busy. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we get into some questions? Okay. Our first question is, do you recall any times in your education where you felt your male peers were either more or less academically spurred by authority figures or simply treated differently than you? And do you have recall this having any effect on your resolve towards your education? So, um, I, I mean, I'd have to go all the way back to high school to find some time where I felt that the boys were treated differently when the girls, than the girls. But when I was in high school, the girls were encouraged to take typing and home economics and the boys were encouraged to take um, auto mechanics and shop. Um, I guess they thought that boys didn't need to know how to type and girls didn't need to know uh, how to fix their cars. Um, <laughs> But that's, that's just the way it was. Um, there wasn't, um, other than that, you know, maybe they steered girls a little bit more towards the arts and the history classes and the boys more towards the science and the math classes. But um, I was good in math. That's why I went into economics and got my undergrad in economics. And, and I don't recall um, any different treatment based on my gender um, once I got into kind of that stream. And once I got to university, we were all pretty much the same. Um, I don't know what the experience is like now, but I I don't recall that. When I went to law school, um, there was only about 30% of the women in, 30% of my class was women, 70% was was men. So um, the vast majority, not the vast majority, but the majority of the students were male students and the female students were, were fewer. Um, however, once you're there, we all took the same courses. There wasn't any disparity among assignments. We 
we worked together. I mean, university is a, as you know, is a different environment. And I don't recall experiencing any um, different treatment because the field was fairly, even though it was still fairly male dominated, it was more open to females being in it. I think that's probably fair to say. Now, um, women are maybe 55%. Uh, So there's even more women than men in the law, I believe. Did you find that there was, I know you said that there was about 30% of your classmates were female. Did you find that same sort of a ratio when it came to your teachers? Or did you recall having like a lot of female teachers or very few? Um, I recalled having um, maybe 50-50. The teachers that stuck in my mind, frankly, were the female ones. So uh, I spent one summer um, acting as a research assistant for a family law professor. Um, One of my favorite professors now sits on the Court of Appeal. She taught me wills and trusts. So um, I guess it was about 50-50. Again, it was an academic environment. all the tax teachers were men, <laughs> but um, I don't know. It, it, I, I have uh, fond memories of some of the women teachers. And then I worked uh, one summer at the um, Student Legal Aid Society and our supervising lawyer was a woman. So do you think coming into law when you did, where it was sort of a women weren't necessarily being discouraged, but they weren't being pushed towards things like that the same way that men were, do you feel that that maybe made you more competitive in something like that? Like more, more willing to prove yourself against the men? Or do you, did you feel like very even playing fields? No, I felt that that was an even playing field. I mean, um, you have to be at the top of your class to get into law school anyways. So I was always at the top of my class. I never felt like I was competing against anybody other than myself, really. So um, I never, I don't know, it was never a matter of trying to get to the top of the class to beat the men. Um, I, I didn't feel, I didn't feel any disparity that way at all. I think it was a little bit different when I started practicing Um, I do know, thinking back and reflecting on some of the questions, like you also asked about um, racialized individuals. I cannot recall any racialized individuals in my law school class. I do recall in my first year, there was a blind woman who took all of her notes um, by way of a Braille device, but um, I didn't see her again after the first year. She she just couldn't handle the pace of the, the work. That well, was, the university had some more steps to working towards accommodating for that. I think so. <laughs> I, I think so. It must have been very, very difficult to accommodate for disabilities. I think so. But, but I think that's still the case now. I mean, I, I'm seeing even accommodations in in the courtroom um, that I don't think we're there yet where we should be. Um, We're better than we were though. But I don't recall any racialized individuals and and when I was practicing law, so um, the firm that I went to had, um, when I went maybe eight, 10 lawyers, when I left, there was maybe 15. In my years as an associate, I was only basically one of two women there. Everybody else was men. Um, and then uh, I was the first woman partner. Um, but now there, there are 
I believe two women partners and three women associates. Again, with about 15 lawyers. So, so they've come a long way. I know that it was really hard for young women in private practice because if particularly in litigation, if you're practicing litigation, um, it can take over your life. If you um, are on a trial list and you've got a trial starting on Monday, you basically spend the whole weekend just preparing and you work long hours and, and you have to do that to be competitive in that field and it takes over you know, your life. I found that a lot of uh, my women colleagues um, left private practice and went to work for uh, insurance companies or corporations where it was more a nine to five job. And, um, and what you were able to take home uh, didn't depend on how many hours you put in. Um, it was more of a salary with a pension type thing. So um, it, it was tough when I was practicing law for women in private practice. There, there weren't, oh, that's my iPhone. I hit the button that tells me where my, no, that's my iWatch, my Apple Watch telling me where my iPhone is. Sorry, <laughs> but um, uh, there weren't very many women in private practice when I was in private practice. So I, I uh, when I would have a case against somebody, it was generally a man, not often a woman in my early years. And some of them at the beginning were condescending and patronizing and would speak to me as though I was uh, more of an assistant than a lawyer, right? Um, but that changed over the years because you start to prove yourself and uh, you are capable. And, and, you know, once you beat them in a trial, then uh, they remember that. Right. <laughs> yeah. So um, it, it, for me, I guess it was the passage of time. When I first became uh, a lawyer, um, the Kitchener, I practiced in Kitchener, the Kitchener courthouse had a big, beautiful men's robing room with their own private bathroom and mirrors and lockers there was no robing room for the women, none. So we basically, they, they, the women's public bathroom in the basement, they put two kind of portable lockers in there and, and that's where we had to change. It, it was really, really bad, really bad. Finally, they, uh, they took a storage room and put lockers in there and said, that's your robing room, but we didn't have a bathroom. Now, there's a beautiful new courthouse in Kitchener uh, with a big robing room with bathrooms and mirrors. And uh, um, the men and the women essentially are treated exactly the same. They have the same size robing room, same number of lockers, same. That's very around. interesting that that gender gap really started to show more in the workplace than it did in um, university and education system. Yeah, and now I'm sure that everybody has a different experience and maybe somebody else um, had maybe a, a different experience that way, but but I didn't. If I wanted to go and talk to a professor, I was able to do that. I, like I said, I worked for um, one of the professors one summer. Another summer, I worked for the Student Legal Aid Society. It's um, I, I didn't feel like I was deprived of any opportunities. Yeah, going back to those. Um... I know you said you had a lot of women who, like women professors, especially who really inspired you. Can no. you talk on any of them throughout your education? And can did I what? Impact on you role models that how did they like fuel your drive for law? Um. Well, once I was in law school, I had a drive for law. Yeah. Right. It was just what kind of practice I'm going to do. But thinking back on it. 
those are the professors that I remember, you know, are you the gender had a bit of an influence on how you sort of looked up to those role models, maybe? No, they were just better at it. (laughs) (laughs) They were just better at it. They were more enthusiastic, you know, about the law. Like, how did my favorite professor, like I said, she sits on the Court of Appeal now and she taught she taught me trusts and wills. Well, how do you make that exciting? Right. Um, but but she did. She was able to just, you know, uh, really get any, everybody inspired. And um, I, the men just didn't seem to be able to do that. And it might be their passion because they were blazing a trail even before I was, you know, but uh in my view, they were just, they were just better at it. <laughs> That's very interesting. And that, that definitely could be, you know, their, their drive for that, their ability to push through the barriers that existed before you were there and then create yeah. better and safer spaces for women in that field to go into those and do all those things. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. During your years in the field of law, how have you seen inclusivity grow? I know you talked about very few or no racialized people in your class whatsoever. Um, have you seen that grow over the years? How have you seen it grow? Honestly, not enough in Kitchener. Now, Kitchener is not a racialized center. Um, it's very much white Anglo-Saxon. Um, that was my view anyways. Uh but you lived there for a long time too, Cass. So I, um, yeah, big difference here in Windsor. Um, but, um, and in my firm, I mean, sure. I was a woman partner and now there are two other women partners, but, but we never had a black lawyer. We never had an East Indian lawyer. We, they just, it didn't seem to be um, that many opportunities for the racialized um, students. And when I was um, uh, president of the Waterloo Law Association, I remember one occasion they were doing a um, a job fair for articling students. After you, you're done law school, you at that point, you were required to article for a year. So work for another law firm for a year. And, um, and it was a period of time where articling students were having trouble finding jobs, particularly in Toronto. Um, if they didn't mind going up to Sudbury or Sault Ste. Marie, maybe they could find a job. But um, I, I went down to Osgoode Hall because there was a, a job fair and I was promoting Waterloo Region along with a couple of other the trustees of the, the Waterloo Law Association. And uh, there were at least uh, two racialized women students who came and talked to us and, uh, and explained that they were really having trouble finding an articling position. And articling was a requirement um, you had to complete a year of articling. So essentially working under a lawyer before you could get called to the bar. So, you know, it was something that they had to do. They'd finished law school, they'd gotten their degree, but they were having trouble finding um, um, a position. And I don't know if it was because they were racialized women, but those were the ones who talked to me about it. Yeah, well, I know we were, um, yeah. when we were looking at the dates of uh, a lot of those trailblazers, like we were talking about the first women to do things, there's a, yeah. a pretty big gap between like, for example, the first uh, black female lawyer in Canada and the first white female lawyer in Canada, or the first indigenous female lawyer in Canada, the first white female lawyer in Canada was I think the late 1800s, I believe, right? Yeah. The, yeah, it should be. 
yeah, Clara Brett Martin in 1897. And then there's uh, almost a 50, 60 year age gap between that and the first black female lawyer. And then there's a 90, 80 to 90 year age gap or uh, time gap between that and the first indigenous female lawyer. So very, very different, uh, very interesting to see the way that race and not just gender really um, hurts women when it comes to trying to get into these fields. Yeah, I, and I think um, that's all part of the systemic racism in our society. Uh, you know, they, um, they're not given the benefit of the doubt. They don't get a hand up like, like some other uh, people do. Um, since I've moved to Windsor and I didn't move to Windsor until I got appointed, I was appointed and then assigned to Windsor. So I moved my family from Kitchener to Windsor to take the job. Um, I see a lot more, uh, racialized, um, lawyers here um there's black lawyers there are um east indian lawyers muslim lawyers and um and they're very good lawyers they know what they're doing they they do a good job they advocate well for their clients so it, it, it really is nice to see really is nice to see i don't know what it's like in other parts of the province i suspect it it's um it's similar in ottawa um, but, uh, but I don't know in Kitchener, even when I left, I don't remember a black lawyer in Kitchener or an East Indian lawyer in Kitchener or an indigenous lawyer in Kitchener. I don't remember that. Yeah. I know in terms of the bench, um, I sit in the Southwest region, which encompasses London, Stratford, St. Thomas, um, Chatham, Sarnia, Windsor, kind of that whole area. And we travel around and sit in all the courts on occasion. Um, mostly we sit where we're um, living and uh, in, a, in our home court, but when needed, we'll go to another court to hear matters. And we have um, an indigenous judge in London, um, but we don't have a black judge. <laughs> and uh, no, we, we don't have an East Indian judge, not that I'm aware of. Um, we might have one now I'm not sure but it's uh it's getting better it's getting better but I think there's still a lot more work to do have you seen any sort of growth in um LGBT gender diverse sort of inclusivity in the law fields yes um Yes, I can say that I have. They, um, as judges, we take training. Every year we take a couple of weeks of training. And um, a lot of times they'll focus on, because we know, the, we know the law, we read the law, we create the law, but they'll focus on um, the things that we need to, to be a better judge. And we did a whole course on uh, LGBTQ. Um, which was really, I found it really helpful. Um, good. It's, it's hard though, because if I have a lawyer appearing in front of me, I wouldn't know if he's part of the LGBTQ community. I wouldn't know that. Um, unless it's obvious and it's not always, it's not generally obvious. Yeah. The lawyers are all dressed professionally and act professionally and, um, that you just, you don't, you don't see any differentiation, right? But, 
but when I'm looking at a lawyer, I'm trying to listen to their argument and, and find out what it is that they're advocating for their client as opposed to any personal characteristics. Um, I do remember uh, once I had um, a, um, a trans, I don't know whether she was a transgender woman appearing in front of me um, and her lawyer kept, because I asked her right up front, um, what pronouns would you like me to use? And she told me and how I was to refer her to and, and what she wanted me to call her, but, but her own lawyer kept messing it up and calling him, you know, his children. And I, and I kept saying, you mean her children? Like, <laughs> it's, I think you really have to be aware. Um, it, it, I mean, the courtroom is a really scary place for some people, right? And um, if they're not treated with respect, it, it just, it makes it that much worse. So. Yeah, especially with that power dynamic, I'm sure with the feeling intimidated going into that. And yeah, people are scared to death. Noise would be worse. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but like I said, we still have a lot, a long ways to go. I think, um, it, and again, it's it's hard for me to see a lot of it. I think a lot of times we're sheltered um, from that. Um, I mean, in criminal cases too. Uh, um, if you have uh, a lot of times the, the accused is racialized and you have to be very careful about their charter rights, for example, and, uh, and that they've been treated fairly by police. And that if, for example, the English isn't their first language, they're given access to, to legal advice through an interpreter or um, uh, a lawyer who speaks their first language. And that's the judge's job, essentially, to, to make sure that all of those rights um, are in place and haven't been violated um, in the course of the case. So um, I don't know. We still have a long way to go, Cass. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. The we were talking about, you know, your your training and stuff that you get for all of these things, and not just that, but the the laws and policies that you uphold. How do you think that they, regarding inclusivity, harassment, gender violence in the workplace specifically, not just your workplace, but workplaces in general? Uh, how do you think that they're either representing or changing the ways that we view women in the workplace, especially when they're often extremely outnumbered by their male colleagues? Well, um, our court, I'm going to sit on the superior court, and we don't do things like human resources. That would go to the human resources tribunal. We might see it in some labor cases if somebody feels that they haven't been treated fairly and they lost their job because they're racialized or a woman, so they might bring a, a wrongful dismissal claim. Um, I, I haven't seen a lot of that. I haven't seen a lot of that. Um, I know that as judges, we're alive to the possibility, um, but I really haven't seen a lot of that. In the last couple of years, all of my work, frankly, has been focused on criminal law or family law, because during the pandemic, that's really where the needs are, you know. Yeah. Um, I can so I can imagine the um, the... Oh, I don't know what I was going to say. I mean, with like the lockdowns happening, I would imagine there's like a lot of domestic violence happening at homes. Well, um, yeah, we saw a strong uptake in domestic violence, um, which is pretty scary. 
Um, we saw a strong uptake in um, families in crisis financially. Um, so people who are unable to pay their court-ordered support because they lost their job or they're, they're in lockdown the first year, I think was really, really tough on people. We found a lot of cases where parents were separated and uh, children are going back and forth. Um, and, um, and one parent says, no, the children shouldn't go to the other parent's house because they're not following the COVID protocol rules or, or they're working at the hospital and they're putting everybody at risk. So we had a lot of what I call COVID access cases. Then we have a lot of, then we had a lot of what I would call COVID school cases because um, here in Windsor, you had your, your option, your child could attend school in person um, unless it was a period of time when the school was shut down or they could attend virtually, but they had to choose one or the other. So if you've got a child going back and forth between mom's house and dad's house and mom wants in person and dad wants virtual or vice versa, um, somebody has to make that decision. So that would come to us. So we had COVID school cases, I called them. Now we're starting to see COVID vaccine cases. Um, parents who can't agree on whether or not their child should be vaccinated. So um, it, it was a huge uptake in that, huge uptake in that. And in terms of the criminal work, um, all of those cases are generally done in person. Um, so we didn't do much uh, criminal work by Zoom, but we have a full schedule of criminal trials. So they all got postponed and that's created a huge backlog. What do you think so, the impacts of like things being pushed back has had on like people's lives, especially like around COVID? Like what is, how would that impact people? If in your well, very like, Abstraction. Just, yeah, abstract question, interpret it as you will. I'm just very curious because like, this is something like I'm not as exposed to. So I'm very intrigued on what you're saying. Yeah, it, it, it depends. And again, I mean, the, the cases that we see right now are the family cases and the criminal cases. And, and if you've got um, an accused who's um, uh, awaiting a trial date, um, and say that there's a victim, it's a sex assault, maybe there's a complainant also waiting for that trial date. They, they were waiting up to maybe two years to have their trial. And then all of a sudden it's put off again. And, and now we're scheduling that much further out. It's, uh, you know, I think they wake up in the morning and that's all they think about. It, and that's the last thing they think about before they go to bed. And, and there really needs to be some closure. Same thing for a separated family. If you've got a separated family and they haven't figured out their finances and they don't have a final custody order and um, they, need, they need to have that closure before they can move on, it, it's, uh, it's got to be tough on them. It's got to be tough on them. So, um, you know, they say justice delayed is justice denied. So the, the COVID pandemic hasn't helped us with that um, because it has created such a backlog and people will wait months now for even just a one hour conference with a judge. But if you're looking at a trial, you're waiting a long, long time. So... Do you, uh, one other fun little question. I know you were talking about how how uh, lawyers, specifically male lawyers treated you earlier on in your career before you kind of had like a reputation or yeah. I know, I remember hearing my mom said that um, you used to be called the, uh, what was it? The Pitbull, I think. Uh, Pitbull or the Dragon Lady. Yeah. I know they would, 
And uh, you know what? That's the thing. Like if, if a woman lawyer is aggressive, she gets called names like that. Yeah. If a man's lawyer is, if a, if a male lawyer is aggressive, then, then they think it's a good thing. Nobody calls them names. But just, I don't know, little things. Like I remember sitting in court waiting to argue a case against a, a senior male lawyer and he would walk by me. He, was, he wanted to resolve it. So he'd walk by me and just sort of go like his head like this, like, come on. As instead of, excuse me, can we go talk about the case? Just, <laughs> and it was, it was I, I don't know, to some extent it was a little bit unprofessional and disrespectful. Um, I remember talking to another male lawyer on the telephone about the case uh, that we, he was on the other side. And I said something, I can't remember what it was about, but I made a comment and, and he, he made what I thought was a very rude statement. He said, I'm all over that like a fat chick on a smarty. And, and I just went, excuse me? Like, why would you say that to me? I just, it, I thought, um, I don't know. I don't know. They, there's a, there was an insensitivity. Uh, and I think that when the women kind of forged their way and uh, forced their way, if you will, into their profession, um, maybe some of the men really didn't know how, how to deal with that. There was an insensitivity about it. I, I, I'm hoping that it's not there anymore. Did you notice that a lot more with like senior lawyers than newer lawyers when you were younger? Like the if they were older, they might have had a bit more of a tendency to treat you that way? Not necessarily. No, there were some older lawyers that were lovely and older judges that were lovely as well. I think it was it was just different personalities. Yeah. You know, there, there are jerks at every age. Um, so... And again, it, it, whether it was just a gender thing or whether they treated everybody like that, I don't know. But um, thinking back on it, th th that must have been part of it, right? Yeah, yeah. The uh, I know we were uh, when we were discussing this, we were talking about um, women in in law, especially in pop culture these days, in TV, and how they're portrayed as like uh, very strong and very um, yeah. very not aggressive necessarily but um adjacent to that I would guess and do you think that that's impacted the way that female lawyers are viewed these days the way that they're portrayed on these tv shows and these law dramas and stuff like that I, I don't know I think um I think young lawyers particularly young female lawyers feel the need to prove themselves um and so can maybe act a little bit that way but and I don't, I don't know. I don't watch those shows. <laughs> I'm a lawyer or I was a lawyer. I'm a judge. I don't watch the legal shows. I watch the medical shows. <laughs> you like to get the other side of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I spend my whole day in a courtroom. I don't need to see it at the end of the day. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know. I still think, like I said, it, 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 there's a, there's a, was a systemic um, gender problem uh, that has gotten like look where we were in the 1950s and the 1960s compared to where we are now um, now there I don't see that there's much of a difference at all between male and female although um, maybe some particularly racialized women might disagree with that mm -hmm. I um, um, 
I do think that the systemic racism is definitely still there for the racialized individuals, though. Yeah, so that and, might be uh, kind of compounding as a woman who is also racialized or yeah. part of the LGBT community. Yeah, well, a, a Black woman lawyer will always be a Black woman lawyer as opposed to a lawyer, you know, and that and that's not right. <laughs> She's a lawyer, just like every other lawyer that appears in front of you. And uh, um, you don't need to characterize them that way. But uh, no, it's like I said, I think I think we've come an awful long way. Um, Probably still have a long ways to go. Always a long ways to go. Yeah. Well, things keep like evolving. Like you wouldn't have thought about like certain rights for certain marginalized communities to actually have like a place in the field but now we see it as like needing to progress to allow for everybody to have that like it wouldn't even be an idea but now we're starting to open up and like see that as being like an issue that we face yeah and not just that but I'm sure back in the when you were going to school there probably was a little bit of a push for like we need to include women but that sentence didn't also include black women POC women marginalized women it was the the automatic thought was white woman yeah 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 no I think you're right I think you're right and now there, there should be more of a push to try to encourage the racialized uh, women and the racialized men into um, this kind of a profession. So I see a, um, uh, too many young racialized men as accused <laughs> and not in other roles in the justice system. You know, there seems to be a, disproportionate number of young racialized men who are um, charged with crimes um, as opposed to you know make maybe being given an opportunity to to do something else with their lives so it's still women of color than white women being accused of crimes as well um I, I, not so much not so much I don't, I don't really the, see the, the disparity but yeah, but but I see the disparity with the men. So it's uh, it's still I don't know. It's still not a good thing. And then um, the the whole indigenous question as well, right? So whenever we sentence an indigenous person, we have to get what's called a Gladu report, and that talks about their experiences as an indigenous person, and particularly their connection with the residential schools. And that's something that we have to take into account when we sentence somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, but if there were like more judges or lawyers that were like indigenous or of like racialized community backgrounds and everything like that, then like the report that you would have to read prior would be like, if they already have that background from themselves, like you have a judge seeing them and everything, they already have that insight on that background. So there would be like a completely different evaluation already there versus somebody that would be like white assuming like there's yeah maybe but um like I said there's an awful lot of training I I did a few years ago a full four-day conference just on indigenous uh, laws and how to encompass them in our laws and they talked about sentencing circles um there's um there's something that we always have to be aware of uh, but um, we still have so long to go. We said it won't be it won't be even until 
we don't see a disproportionate number of racialized men in jail. Um, and until we see uh, all different colors of faces on the bench and uh, wearing lawyers' robes, making their arguments, and it, it just, it has to get better, it has to get better. So, I mean, that's, we as a society has to have to do better with that. We would like to thank Justice Hebner for agreeing to do this interview and sharing her experiences from her time in the field of law. We're now going to have a small discussion on what we thought of the interview, anything that surprised us, and how we feel this has contributed to our overall understanding of feminism. So how did you guys like the interview? I thought it went really well. Like, everything that we discussed, I found, was, like, new and, like, an insight to what was actually going on in, like, the field of law that, like, I don't think you would get to know much about if it were, like, trying to get to know it on, like, TV or YouTube. You'd really have to, like do a one-on-one with somebody in there and I think we got that through the interview which is really helpful I like having the insight on it although I did feel like that if she was a woman of color we would have seen like a bit more of the issues yeah also I felt that she's regarded like the whole situation everything whereas in a technical way so she talks a lot about the classes and how well they're both the same classes for men and women but she didn't really talk about the attitude that other students had. I feel like that was very, like, forgiven and let go of. Whether yeah. if you consider someone more now, they do more, like, microaggressions and that type of stuff. And I think that definitely could be a reflection of the fact that, um, you know, she went to school in the 80s there, right? Like, she graduated in 86. So I think that feminism back then was a lot of, like okay if they're respecting me in some degree it's you know equality I think equality and the way that people looked at things like that back then was a lot different like she said like her her high school was like women women took at courses and men took uh yeah. mm-hmm. like the, yeah and I remember that being a thing that my mom told me about where it was um when she was growing up it was like literally mandatory for the women to take specific courses and the men to take other courses so I think it's definitely a very different time and a, a bit of a different perspective from us growing up in this like new fifth wave sort of feminism. Sure. That's yeah, really did focused ap- on things like that. Mm-hmm. I did appreciate that like, she talked about how other lawyers' attitudes were towards her, especially when she said that, oh, when they would tell me that they wanted to have a discussion, they wouldn't just talk to me. They would just tell me, they like make a signal with their heads or something rather than using their words like they would with someone else, most likely. But yeah. even then, you can see that her attitude tends to be more forgiving towards those things. And she was like, well, I, we both had the same opportunities, sort of. Yeah, I think that um, it was really interesting for me to hear about her experiences with her different teachers in university. Because I think that, you know, when she was mentioning the women did it better, and we were talking about how that possibly could be like a reflection of you know, them being more of a trailblazer in that community and really setting it up to like try and have women succeed where they had the opportunity to help women succeed. Also, I think like the fact that like women that were teaching her had to overcome most likely a lot more to get to that position. So being able to give back at that, like in that level, at that level must have given them a lot more insight on how to give back better and like how to inspire people and have that desire to like make others persevere as well more so than like male teachers who like just the course that like where we probably now would have the same opportunities male teachers back then but like they would have to fight more so yeah 
I think um, I know what you were saying about the whole having a woman of color would have been uh, maybe a bit more of a broader perspective on marginalization in the community. But I also think that it is interesting to get a white woman's perspective just because it's very, it is different and it's, it's more of a representation of the, the people who tend to have the power in those situations. Like I know that we were talking about, you know, she is marginalized because she's a woman in those situations, but she also did have the power of being the person who was, you know, more encouraged to do something like law school than I'm sure a woman of color would have. And she had, you know, those experiences as a white woman and learning, you know, going into the field and learning more about this stuff and going to all those workshops that she has to do in the justice system now and learning more about inclusivity. I think it's important to get those perspectives as well. Yeah, and I found it like, it was very helpful because she, was still a woman but she was also white so that gave her a lot of privilege and she was able to see like her probably colored woman classmates going through more struggle than her and I feel like that helped a lot during the interview especially for her to to, like fully understand or like to somewhat understand how she still does have that privilege as a white woman. Mm -hmm. Well I remember like while she was talking about like the job fair that she was hosting with like the there were like two women of color that came and they were just needing that like right they came out of law school they went through everything and they just needed to get that like experience of working in a firm I believe and they still couldn't get that so they were still you know needing to keep going but weren't even capable of doing so just because of their color and I think that's another important thing to acknowledge is that white women need to use their privilege to you know raise women of color and marginalized communities more it's not just about, you know, and it's not about, you know, the white savior complex and feeling good about it. It's about recognizing your privilege and understanding that you had a leg up in life that you didn't deserve. And the same way that the female professors tried to make it easier for her when she was going through university to be a female there, I think it's very important that white women not only allow space for people of color in those situations, but actively encourage it. Yeah, and they can definitely use their privilege to help better, like, the equality in, like, certain workplaces. Mm. Because you think there's not, like, you know, 100 years ago, whatever, I'm sure that there was laws that would have made it extremely difficult. And I'm sure that there still is, like, some laws and policies that make it extremely difficult for women of color. But these days, it's maybe more about the social stigma that's involved with being a woman of color and the, the culture that's more a part of the oppression. So changing opinions is a a big part of that. But it's also interesting because it's, you know, she's enforcing the law that is deciding these things. You guys have anything else that surprised you about the interview? It was mostly that she was the first female partner in her firm when like she first started. I thought that was absolutely crazy. And that even then, after all those years and after the time that she worked there, there was just two, I believe she said. I was like, wow. And that there was no people of color. And I feel like... Well, and that's what I, I remember talking about the dates with her, about the differences between, like, the first female lawyer who was admitted to the bar in Ontario was, like, the 1800s, like, late 1800s. And the first Indigenous female that was admitted to the bar was in the 80s. So a very, very big gap there. But then you can see like the sort of speed up of progress because the gap between the first woman on the superior court that she's on 
And the gap between the gap between that and the first indigenous woman on the superior court is a lot shorter. I think it's only like 20 years. I think that's also because of the fact that if you would consider it, watch out to explain this, but like it was it happened in the past more, but now like as time went on, it was closer to like modern day, and now it's more you could say accepted that there's people of color on the board, which it wasn't before. Mm-hmm. So then that allowed the time gap to be smaller. Um, I also found it interesting that there's workshops. I actually didn't know that there was workshops. I'm not sure how those would work, but I think that's interesting. So I think from what I understand about them, it's a lot of like um, a lot of policy stuff because the you know Indigenous law versus Canadian law and how those kind of fit together, but also a lot of like. Um, cultural sensitivity training and training with Indigenous people. Um, and I, I do know that I'm pretty sure that they do that for a lot of communities as well, you know, marginalized. Mm-hmm. I feel like something like that is inevitable, but it did kind of shock me because as a woman of color myself, I'm like, wow, like you guys have to get like trained <laughs> to know how to speak to people of color. Like that just seems so like such that's a thing that energy. like you think people would know how to do. Yeah, that's sort of like what I got from that as well. And I was like, wow. All right. Yeah, like, like it that, was kind of like the laws yeah, are like so it, different yeah. that you need to have a workshop like for people of color or for different cultures. Like that's just a bit crazy to me. Yeah, it kind of it took me aback in a way and I was like well, something that I never really like thought would be a thing, mm-hmm. but I guess it does make sense in a way because a lot of people who are raised in different times as us tend to say a lot of things that could be deemed as offensive now and stuff like that so well, and that's what I think it is it's not necessarily it, it's it's not necessarily learning to do something it's really unlearning it's unlearning the biases that you yeah exactly are like really unconsciously ingrained and consciously going against them yeah and it and I feel like that is very effective and useful but it still like boggles my mind how that even has to be a thing like you know but I guess it's really like I think it will probably like with time like that will somewhat change with there being like maybe less workshops but either way I think the workshops are good in a sense but like with more and more like a diverse amount of lawyers that are gonna yeah, be like exactly. put into the, that field they will have like they'll be dealing with clients of the same background I would assume yeah. so because that way they have a personal understanding of what that person might have gone through to lead to them being in that situation which would be like the best scenario over mm-hmm. but even though like there aren't that many people you know yeah <laughs> what were you gonna say I heard someone um I know I think it was you during the interview you said about how like indigenous people should get indigenous judge because they have knowledge on like generational trauma and mm-hmm. what happened with residential schools more close up than let's say a white lawyer or a white judge would know so they yeah. can either represent them better or just make the decision that needs to be made better well, and that's the thing, right? The, the the judges that are working right now, most of them went to school in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, right? You, you, I'm sure that they learned nothing about residential schools. I'm sure that they learned, they like when they went through the school system, they learned nothing about, you know, marginalized communities and stuff like that. If they were encouraging women to take home ec classes, I don't think that they were super concerned with marginalized communities and teaching white people how to be respectful towards marginalized communities. I don't think that was a concern at all. 
Well, not only that, I don't even think it was like our curriculum for like high school has changed so much. Like now we have Indigenous studies in our English classes. That was not something that actually was a thing like five years ago. So imagine like the differences in the education system, whereas like in the 60s versus today. So like what the difference in like those lawyers are learning with the ones that are already on like the boards right now. So yeah, there's huge differences. (laughs) Yeah, and like another thing that had really shocked me in the interview, what she was talking about is how when she has to sentence or charge an Indigenous person, that there has to be like a certain report done just to see how like their behaviors and their actions and crimes are linked to like traumas that they've had or like especially intergenerational traumas with like residential schools and stuff. And I find that kind of interesting because it's like, we put all these like measures and stuff into place when people are being sentenced and charged, but it's like when people are crying out for help, especially indigenous people, it's like, we're doing nothing. Like we're sitting here and we're just, we're just waiting for them to, to, to do a crime or commit whatever it is for them to go to court. And then we're finally giving them the help or not even the help, but we're finally acknowledging them. Like that just, that also blew my mind because it's like, what could we have done to even prevent them from getting to the stage of them having to go to court. I just want to add something towards the education thing. I feel like that's really a statement to the fact that people will take like years of experience in the workforce over like a more recent education. I feel like, you know, all these judges that have gone their education in the 60s or the 80s or whatever, like, prevent newer generations and people with a more modern education take their place just because of these years of experience yeah and when it comes to stuff like judges and appointing judges it's I know it's like a really political process it's very like um you do have to have like a certain number of years of experience for stuff like that and it it does definitely make it difficult when it took so long for indigenous and people of color to actually get into those spaces in general just to like even be admitted to the bar for them to then you know have all of that experience that I'm sure is a lot easier for a white person to get because of all of their privilege so it does if they had privilege in the his in like in history and they were able to obtain their degree faster they were able to do these things then they're going to get those positions because it requires years of experience yes and that's what i mean about not necessarily just making space for women of color and for marginalized communities but encouraging it because it's it's really it's it's not just about you know letting it happen it's about trying to strive for equality and not just you know aim for it Like not opening the door to it, but like more like pushing and encouraging people. Yeah, to yeah. Because there's systemic racism, because even though people still have prejudices, like people are going to be more careful about going. They're going to like debate going or not because they don't want to, like, especially if they don't want to deal with that type of situation or if they don't want to be put in a bad position because of it. Mm-hmm. I know we talked a lot about um, in this class and in other classes, you know, white women turning you know, they're anything that could go wrong with them into a racialized issue. So, you know, I didn't get into law school. It's because they're trying to be more diverse and they don't want white people in, right? That like kind of automatic assumption and really trying to steer away from that and understanding that, you know, opening these doors and encouraging people of color to go into these positions isn't taking away from white people. It's taking away what you shouldn't have had in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
I know one more comment like that she made that I thought was really interesting would be that the lawyers would call her like a pit bull or a dragon lady because she'd be aggressive. But then if they were to do it, it'd be, oh, wow, he's such a good lawyer. Mm -hmm. And you can see that reflection, not just with white women, but like even, you know, in between women, you know, like um, villainizing Mm -hmm. women of color, especially black women for like being aggressive and angry and that being like a very degrading stereotype that I'm sure it would be difficult to overcome if you were put in a position where you had to be aggressive and angry. Like, where like people would literally not respect you or not listen to you if you weren't, if like you were pretty much yelling in their face. Mm -hmm they just would completely ignore you or brush it off and even yeah. then they'd ri- ridiculize you saying that oh it's because of your emotions you're having too many emotions and you can tell she when she was talking about it and she said that she really only gained their respect when she started winning cases against them and mm-hmm. you know it's it's very much like your worth is dependent on you know what you can produce and if you can beat other people and not necessarily like how good of a job you did or your effort exactly I think it just displays how much, like, you constantly as, like, a need to keep um, proving yourself every single time you're going up against something, which is unfortunate because usually it should just be that you're doing it and trying your best instead of, oh, keep proving yourself to get to that position. Exactly. Even, like, especially if a case isn't meant to win, like, if they did what they did and it's not, they're not supposed to win that side, then they're not, they didn't gain respect because of it. But, like, it wasn't their place. I don't know if that made sense. And it is it is a weird field for that to be the deciding factor because it's mm-hmm. law should be realistically like fair. Yeah, it should be fair. But when it comes to lawyers, it does turn into a bit of a competition, I think. And so that's where you get that, like, need to perform and do as good or better than your male peers in this male-dominated field in order to feel as respected or even close to as respected as them. This podcast would not be possible if it were not for the generosity and time of Jacqueline Richard from Women in Communication and Technology and Jeanette Kranz from the Women's Economic Council.